Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. I spoke with my colleague Ryan Hart about conversational gift planning this week. Ryan has coined the term the four gift frames and walks us through each of them and how they can help us identify bigger, mutually beneficial gifts between our donors and institutions. Ryan explains to us that we don't need to know the ins and outs of complicated gifts to be able to identify them with our donors. Ryan also highlights the critical aspect of collaborating with colleagues. This is a crucial ingredient with the type of work we're talking about. Ryan Hart is the Executive Director of Gift Planning at Columbia University, where he oversees strategic university-wide efforts to raise funds for the $5 billion Columbia Commitment Campaign through planned gifts. Since Ryan's arrival at Columbia in January of 2014, he has also led fundraising and alumni relations at the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation, and served as Special Advisor for University Development Priorities. Prior to Columbia, Ryan served for more than 22 years at Vassar College, including leading the gift planning, leadership gifts, parent giving, and annual fund teams, and as Assistant Vice President for Individual Giving and Associate Campaign Director for the college's 431 million Vassar 150 World Changing Campaign. Ryan is a graduate of Vassar with a degree in political science. Now let's get started. And now for a special announcement. Save the date for May 20th. The Development Debrief is hosting its first Zoom event called Owning Your Network with special guest Craig Smith. Keep your eye out for details on LinkedIn tomorrow. Ryan, welcome to the Debrief. Thank you for inviting me. It's wonderful to see a familiar face, and I really miss running into you at the elevator and at my desk. I know, the fifth floor. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on as a colleague that I love working with and to give you a platform to share some of the work that you've been doing. But let's start with synergy between planned giving and major giving and scholarships annual giving. Yeah, right. All of the pieces. This is a newer concept for some people. So let's start there. And it was a new concept for me too, honestly, until probably about 15 years into my career, which was about halfway. It took me a while. I wish wish I had met John Brown, um, who, you know, I had the good fortune to know before he had a too soon death of cancer. And it was, but it was about 15 years in, and I thought I was a pretty good annual gift fundraiser, reunion gifts, moving into major gifts, until I met John, and then realized that there's a whole other better way to talk to people about giving. I, I guess I would say it's better for me, and I think you found in my, I know in collaborating with you that. Um, it feels better, more natural to have conversations with people about their giving holistically right. and what's going on in their lives and what assets they have, rather than just the transactional ask that, you know, again, I thought I was pretty good at doing as an annual giving officer. I could get the ask out whenever you needed me to. I could ask for the thing that we wanted, um, what our campaign was about. 
what I think we do better when we start thinking holistically about the donor first is we create the opportunity to be honest brokers between our organization, Columbia, in this case, um, and what the donors care about. And not only is it more satisfying, but it actually leads to bigger gifts. It leads to bigger gifts and it leads to more kinds of gifts. So the person who might not have been an annual donor who then gets into this kind of conversation, it's an about an end of life gift maybe is where the conversation starts. In that conversation, I can also, or somebody who's thinking like this and speaking with donors like this can say, it really matters that we also have your annual support. In that conversation about end of life giving or life income giving or some other type of planned gift, we can impress upon them as fundraisers, not gift planners, not major gift officers, not annual giving officers. We can impress upon them that the way that is best for the donor is really good for us too. Hmm. At Columbia, we're launching a student support initiative. And of course, my mind immediately goes to endowed scholarships. That's what it is. Yeah, but it's Maybe also- that's not the case, right? But it, it happens to be that student support funds are really great for the end of life gift too, and life income gifts, which are, when we talk about end of life gifts and life income gifts, now you're getting into what people would traditionally think of as planned giving. But again, I would say you don't have to be a gift planner and nor should you be. We can't, there aren't that many of us in an organization we need for the frontline fundraisers, no matter the size or type of gift that they're raising to be conscious of these ways that people can give because the conversation could go there it, and maybe it should go there. No matter where you start on the spectrum of talking with a donor about it, you can talk to them about, you know, what if you, if, if you could, would you like to, talk about some ways that you could make that go on forever, right? And now all of a sudden you've teed up the notion without talking about death or any of the taboo subjects that everyone worries about, then you can bring up that idea. Well, what do you mean by that, Ryan? The donor says. And well, what I mean is that in addition to all the wonderful gifts that you make during your lifetime, there are other points in your life that you could Add to that, if you have a windfall or you get an inheritance or you decide that this is what your priority is in life and that it would make you feel good to have some of what you accumulate during your lifetime end up supporting other students. As the Four Decisions Training would say, life events with financial components. Absolutely. Those are the inflection points where we can be talking with donors about everything. Absolutely. So I can give you an example. Thanks to you. I recently had a discovery call where the donor told me that they wanted to include a provision for Columbia in their plans. And I started, you know, of course, I thanked them. We had a conversation about it. And then I said, would you be interested to start that impact now? Would you be, let's talk about your giving. Would you be open to endowing something now that this would go into? And gee, I never thought about that, he said. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And, and, and that, that wasn't necessarily the way that you first were trained. Right. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. And, and I wasn't either. None of us were, but this is a little bit 
more fluid. I love that example that you just gave because you're talking about starting something. If this fits re really well and you love what you're doing, Donor X, then let's talk about you growing that fund with a provision in your estate. Or if you were thinking about giving money to your grandchildren um, so that you know they remember you, rather than dumping all of that money on an 18-year-old all at once, what if you spread that over 10 or 20 years and then at the end of that 10 or 20 years, it gets added, what's left gets added to your scholarship fund without having talked jargon and spoken jargon about a charitable remainder trust, you've just pitched the concept of a life income, a testamentary life income gift that starts when the donor dies because they've made provisions during their lifetime in their long range planning to have it set up that way. You can start to create the arc and help people imagine how ordinary people make extraordinary gifts. This is how they do it. But our peers are starting to package them, but it's hit or miss because the first thing that people often are thinking about if you're an annual or major gift fundraiser, principal gift fundraiser is what kind of money can we get right now? And they assume something that isn't true. And it's this, which is that a planned gift will take away from the outright gift. And you're, you're a great example. Once you have that conversation, you realize it right away. <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, gift. It, it's a multiplier. Yes. So I want to give you kudos, Ryan. You have run the plan giving effort in our campaign. Your team is amazing to work with. They're collaborative. You are almost to goal for the campaign goal. Yes. Are you seeing that fundraisers are catching on to this? What's your viewpoint in terms of trends and types of gifts that have come out of our team? If they can get the words out the way that you just did, Catherine, then we will be glad to step in wherever they need us. Whether the, so whether you as the gift officer initiate the conversation or whether it comes as a lead that's generated through our direct mail marketing or our digital marketing or any of those other things or the advertisement in the Columbia magazine, wherever it happens to be, we will default to partnering with a fundraiser because that's, that's the best arrangement is when the fundraiser who may manage that relationship or has all of the depth of experience within a particular school or area of expertise or whatever. And then one of us who has the more general understanding of all of the ways that a donor can give. Um, that's a really powerful conversation. We can usually, if you, for instance, bring me into a conversation, I can probably say things that you wouldn't early in a conversation. Yes. For right? example, you've one of the things that I've really enjoyed doing with you is the second person, the partner, can come in and ask clarifying questions. Right. In a way that makes it, I don't want to say innocent because it's not like there's anything honest, innocent that we're doing, but just to say, can you can you repeat that again? Can can we discuss that again? And you get more information, you're able to dig deeper. Right. And, you know, did I hear you correctly that, that that sale of your business was even more than you expected? Was it twice as much? <laughs> was it, you know, or 
Right. The partnership is powerful. And one more thing I want to add to that too is in thinking about, I was just listening to another podcast with David Lively and he was talking about the power of relationships that our officers hold. And if you're doing partnering where a donor knows more than one person, it creates more sustainability for the organization as well. Absolutely. You know, that was, I, I'd mentioned John Brown, the, had the pleasure of getting to know John Brown, not through Columbia, but at Vassar, where I had had, that's my alma mater, where I had had a long career before this. And he was a gift planning consultant, really. He was a guru in gift planning and, you know, all of the, these interesting, weird ways that people could make gifts that maybe they'd never thought of. But what the reason we hired him as our campaign consultant is because it happened at that time that there were five of us who had been at Vassar already for 15 or 20 years in leadership positions. We didn't want a cookie cutter campaign from one of the, not that there's anything wrong with those, there isn't. We had done one that ended in 1996. This was now 2006, and we were talking about a campaign that would end in 2013. We didn't need to do it that way again. We needed to do something differently. We also had, a by the end of that campaign, a 20-year serving president, a lot of deep relationships already. We needed somebody to help us talk to people that we knew already. And John was amazing. I mean, I would find myself probably as you did when you started hearing Craig Smith or, you know, some of, I mean, who works for John Brown Limited, there's a reason that Craig Smith is involved with us because he was as close to John's style as what any of us who knew John had seen. What I remember was John would phrase something and I would say, I can really say that to the donor. And it wasn't something horrific, but I think we imagine that there's a lot that, that can't be said, that there's a certain decorum that's expected or a language, but that, that decorum or language or whatever that I thought, you feel like there are certain things that you shouldn't exactly say just to be Absolutely. proper, right. right? just proper, polite conversation. You don't talk about money. Well, we, that's our job. We have to get, so we have to get over that. So then how do you broach these subjects? And, you know, so John would say, you know, you just, you just mentioned that you're selling a company. Is that, do you think you're going to get eight figures for that? Do you, or do you think it might be more? And I'd be like, oh, you know, clutching my pearls. <laughs> and, you know, and the donor, you know, and the donor would say, no, that's probably about right. <laughs> and, and they're proud to tell you. And they're proud to tell me. Yeah, so we've talked about the concept of this 360 degree approach that the types of giving are not in silos. Let's drill down now into what you have named and put together as the four gift frames. This is so exciting. It's hot off the press. The gift part comes from the various types of gifts that a person may make an outright gift, a pledge, a bequest intention, a testamentary trust, whatever it happens to be, the types of gifts, but also even the mechanisms, cash, securities, tangible personal property, real estate, blah, 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 right? And the time frame in which they might do it. So the gift type plus time frame, it started that we wanted to, you know, fill a ballroom in New York City with people. 
that's hard to get people out. We learned we that I will. Yeah, I, I remember that pre-pandemic. Yeah, yeah pre-pandemic. And again, I was fortunate to work in a place like Columbia that would consider that kind of investment if we could get the people out. It, well, what the return's we, pretty high. The return's very high. Yeah. Exactly. That's and that's the reason, right? Because mm -hmm. if you can get people to come out and listen to something that you've cast as what would you do with your money if you <laughs> could dream a little bit, then if we could if we could cast it that way transparently, rather than saying, you know, bait, baiting and switching, which is a lot of what come here about elementary estate planning and then it becomes a pitch for you know a charitable gift annuity or to our organization right and so what what i didn't want to do is i didn't want to create ambiguous leads follow up with people who thought they were coming to you know because somebody then for it to be useful has to come and follow has to follow up with whoever right. And that can be uncomfortable for the fundraiser, actually. Oh, for sure. Oh, no, we, it's uncomfortable for me if I create that situation where it's not clear why I'm following up. So I'm a believer. Be transparent about what you're asking people to do. Um, the invitation even said, what was it? It says, what if you could see today what you could accomplish tomorrow? And then on the inside of the invitation, it has... Um, the little outline of everything that we're going to talk about, the four gift frames, and then boom, 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 underneath it. And the four gift frames are right now, current. And so you and I would talk about those as outright gifts. But I focus in that conversation about gifts other than cash. And so that's the primer then on gifts of, of appreciated securities that people can give, you know, because of current tax law, bundle in, within, you know, with DAS, if you want to try to get over the sort of threshold for itemizing for federal tax purposes, and why a DAF might be a fine idea that you could also easy way to liquidate sort of unusual gifts that maybe they weren't thinking about. And also then a big push and reminder to people that even if they aren't old enough to be thinking about the qualified charitable distribution from a retirement plan, that at some point they will be old enough when retirement would be the point when their philanthropic dreams could be realized. That's completely counterintuitive to anybody who was saving for retirement up until then. I think most people would have imagined um, retirement, I'm not going to have an extra nickel to spare. And what we find is that people who would consider themselves ordinary, teachers and school administrators and nonprofit workers are finding that they have been able to put away enough money uh, that they don't have to scrimp the way that they thought that they would in retirement. And in fact, because of required minimum distributions at 72 years old, many of these people even find they don't want to have to realize the income that will be taxed at ordinary income rates, the worst kind. If we're not talking to them when they're in that, that phase of complaining, in that mindset of complaining about, I have to take income that I wish I didn't. I'd rather it just grew tax-free until I actually need it. And, and that's, by the way, not even to mention the incredible wealth transfer that's beginning, that we're going to be getting, we're going to be seeing over the next decade of inheritance. For that's sure. Another stream 
that people need help with figuring out how to how to handle. Well, and so much of that wealth is in these retirement plans. Right. It's stupid so, to give so, those away. Right. And and the thing is, I mean, and, and uh, you know, at any given point, the tax law or regulations or whatever may change the landscape a little bit. But in this current moment, in 2021, the current landscape is that um, the heirs of, of tax-deferred retirement plans they're required now, and it was a fairly recent change, they're required now to withdraw all of the money that they might inherit within 10 years of the person who was leaving it to them dying. This is why maybe the IRA is a better gift for charity <laughs> and another asset might be a better gift for heirs. These are the, these are the simple distinctions that we might get into in a gift planning conversation and that we educate frontline fundraisers, just be mindful of that, that even a simple transaction like, which is the better asset to give? It actually builds trust. Builds trust. You're the, that you are doing what you claim to do, which is to be an honest broker, to find the right thing for them at your organization, not just a representative from the organization trying to get as much from everyone out there yes. as possible. So let's go back to the frame. So you mentioned the first one is right now. The second one is the current. second one. The second one is is also current. So okay. I guess you could say say a one A, but I I treat them separately because whole seminars could be done on this category itself. It's a current gift that pays either the donor or someone else income for their lifetime or a term of years. This is wonderful for grandchildren or family members or dependents. Absolutely. Or it's a way of diversifying retirement planning. Mm -hmm. It's a way of turning appreciated stock that may not be producing a lot of income um, into a stream of income. You, you go down these routes as, as a fundraiser just knowing that they exist is what matters, not that you that you as the fundraiser know all of the ins and outs of how to, you know, to close one of these things. You shouldn't because you need to know about the areas of funding. You need to know organizationally what the options are for putting that gift to use because I'm going to know more about some of the mechanisms and how to close the gift, but I can never know what you know about the school or what their priorities are or what this dean this or that professor's research is or all of those things and that's why the partnership really is important so these life income gifts is what i'm talking about are um, another option and of the these four gift frames that, are, that i'm talking about two of them are pretty obvious to people two of them maybe not and this is one of the two that's probably most people don't realize that they can make a gift to charity or most charities. And if a charity doesn't offer these options, there are now wonderful third-party partners that can, can offer them on behalf of the charity or do the transaction and the charity benefits irrevocably. If the hurdle with in the conversation with a fundraiser with a donor is, well, I don't think that I can part with assets. I still I'm still going to need to. Um, you know, save some powder for retirement or something like that. The conversations can then go, if there was a way to in, 
to use the same assets that you had to generate more income then? Would that be something that would be interesting to you to hear more about, <laughs> right? It's that simple. It's that simple. And you take that to your, to right. your and, planner. You know, and, and you're, a, you're, a very, you're very good about writing your contact reports. Fundraisers, write your contact reports because this is the way that the rest of us know to that we might have something to add to your case. If Catherine Van Sickle puts in her contact report that it doesn't seem like the gift could happen now because they have these considerations and blah, 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 blah. If Catherine Van Sickle didn't pick up on it right away, it might be that somebody else would say, hey, they might be a right candidate for an income producing gift at least it's something that you could go back to them and say, hey, you know, I, I'm, re I'm thinking again about, I keep hearing what you said to me. I didn't have the presence of mind when I was with you, but I thought of, I've been thinking about it since. And, you know, there are options that people have like you who don't think that they can part with assets, but where the asset can fund an arrangement that will create a stream of income for you or others. And then later, when you no longer, or they no longer need the income, charity gets it. Let's move on to gift frame number three. Yes. And that's, this is, this is the second of the, the two. People know about outright gifts, which was the first one. Then we talked about life income gifts. People don't know that. The third, most people, this is what they think of when they think of gift planning, end of life, bequests, Mm -hmm. Right. But the quest is more than a will. In fact, only about 40% of American adults have a will. It's shocking, but people yeah, should have them, but most people don't. And, mm -hmm. and even really wealthy people don't have them. Now, having said that, it's not to shame people into doing a will. It, there is a time and place when it will become obvious. COVID was a, was a blessing to the charitable industry. Yes. because it forced people to grapple with their mortality. Bequests aren't just wills, they're also living trusts. This is how a lot of people will take care of their estates. But a bequest does not mean it's the end of the conversation. This is a perennial sort of complaint, I guess, that fundraisers say, well, if I ask for the bequest, I'll never have anything else to talk to them about. And I can back up, that is true. Right? That is and true. An example I'll give is somebody who knows that that she wants to make some sort of commitment through her estate, but she isn't ready to do the whole big plan that requires a lot of advisors, a lot of time, a lot of expense, coordinating with her spouse. What are the, you know, the kids are of a certain age. Should we wait to do this until then? Blah, blah, blah. But she she has a retirement account um, from a job three jobs ago, and she's like, oh, that would be a nice start. And so it's a matter of she goes and she makes the change to the beneficiary designation of that, of that one retirement plan mm -hmm. because she hasn't consolidated them all into you know, one sort of IRA that's being managed in one place. It's still managed wherever it was that she had worked before. But that's, that's a, I think, a great example because this is now... If she saw, sees how easy that is, then um, use that. And she likes what she's decided to do with the eventual proceeds. 
and she's it's engaged. Stewardship. Right. She feels great about being part of the donor community. Right. We've we've made a sufficient fuss over her, but we've also said thank you so much for telling us because we wouldn't necessarily have known what you cared about had mm -hmm. we not been had we not asked you to think about this bigger commitment that you can make at the end of your life, right? Right. We also know, and she knows, when her kids are a different age and she is a different age at a different life stage, she will be able to think differently about her outright giving. And right. ideally the assets she has will have grown. Will have grown, Bigger. right. Or she doesn't need some of them. You know, that lake house that we took the kids to or the ski lodge or whatever, all of those years, now it's nothing but a burden and an expense and we never go there and they don't want it. So beneficiary designations, that's that's the case that I'll make for them. Don't overlook beneficiary designations. They can be of retirement accounts are particularly good because also the donor, um, there's not the issue of heirs having to then pay ordinary income tax. Or it's better for charity to get tax deferred retirement accounts, period. The fourth, area gift frame is now a combination of two and three, which is life income gifts for other people that are put into an individual's donor's will that take care of people other than the donor. And they begin, so it's put into the will and the life income gift doesn't start for an heir until the donor dies. And the will then creates the life income gift that may pay the grandchild for 10 years. Um, and then what's left after 10 years in that trust goes to uh, the charity for the purposes that have been negotiated up front. And that's a more unusual one, right? It's a more unusual one, but it's, it's also the one that um, I was glad to have the opportunity that you're giving me. This is the one that where I see the most opportunity because I think fundraisers, myself included, because this was a fairly recent aha moment, <laughs> was everybody who wants to leave something to heirs could probably entertain the idea of having heirs as the first use of the assets, the income generated by the assets, rather than giving up the assets themselves. So let's say uh, you know, $100,000 worth of stock, um, rather than giving the $100,000 worth of stock to the grandchild or the child, cousin, niece, nephew, whatever it is, instead give the income producing capacity of that $100,000, give that income stream to the heir, the child, the grandchild, the, and then the assets that are producing the income for that person at a certain period of time, or maybe even for their lifetime, if it qualifies for it to last that long, depending on the beneficiary's age, then charity gets what's left over. Now, the donor, it's not a binary choice. The donor has to choose either heirs or charity, but both. And people might be thinking, how, how will there be anything left if this asset lives for 40 years or 70 years beyond? Right. Yeah. The answer is that it continues to grow in the market, right? It, it continues to be invested. 
And so only certain portion of the income is given it's back. No, now, necessarily, in all of these cases where the charity isn't getting it right then and there, there is a degradation of the purchasing power of that mm -hmm. initial gift. So $100,000 that the heirs might get an income stream from is not the same in 20 years to the organization as $100,000 today. But if the choice was between nothing, nothing and the future purchasing power of twenty of hundred thousand dollars in twenty years, I'll take <laughs> you know the something. By the way, I do think you're right that this is the most exciting this fourth frame because that is the most common thing that I hear in talking to donors is I would love to, but I really want to leave everything to my kids. Right. I really want them to feel secure. I really want them to know that I loved them. Right. That is what I hear over and over and over. It was exactly what do you say to that. Well, it was exactly that, honestly. That was the aha moment. And I had it in December of 2020. And it was two people within a, in the same week. They they were they both said almost identically, I just want the grand, it's not that they need it necessarily, but I just want the grandkids to know that grandpa thought of them you know, or grandma thought of them. And that was like, oh my gosh, I need to be thinking about this more because that must be the way, that must be just a lot of people are thinking about that. It There's isn't that. And then the alternative to that is I'm really scared to leave this much money to my kids. Absolutely. That's the other one. The alternative was a term of years over which this distribution could be made as many as 20 was legally allowable mm -hmm. and so when I said 20 the donor said oh I wouldn't want it to go on that long because the donor wants to see charity get the use of it mm -hmm. more like 10 years I want to end with credit because credit, that's another yes. thing that's so huge and it's something that's very competitive at Columbia our peer institutions why is share credit so important? I'll, I'll give away the lead here. We share everything at Columbia. I think we're a little bit unusual in that. Why is that so important? Well, I, I tell you, I mean, what a, what a blessing it was that Columbia already had this policy of sharing credit because if it didn't, I think I would be, have spent my first five years trying to get that to happen because it matters so much that organizations share credit between major gift and annual gift officers and gift planning officers for these asks. Otherwise, there's no incentive for frontline fundraisers who hold most of the relationships mm -hmm. to actually then include their gift planning colleagues. You and I both have our own portfolios that we manage, but then if something comes up and I think you're the best partner to help me close that gift because it's in the region where you specialize or it's with a school that you know better than others, then I do not hesitate for one second to bring you into the conversation, to bring in you or the other right person or people who can make that gift happen, can give the best service to that donor, the best answer, the best whatever. And we all get credit for it and not if it's two of us that you get half and I get half we the crediting at Columbia and this may not be the way it's set up other places is that if it's a hundred thousand dollar ask 
then on our dashboards, we get $100,000 credit each. Yeah, I wanted to highlight that because it's just such a big part of the culture that we're trying to build with the synergy. It, 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 it is absolutely critical. I'm glad, that you, I'm glad that you made sure to get that in because it's a linchpin to this whole collaborative ecosystem working. Thank you so much for sharing all of this so openly, for talking with us about your work, our work. It's really fun to have, you know, a valued colleague on the debrief. I would love to end with my signature question, which is Ryan, what do you know for sure? I know that I am so much happier in my own work for having discovered this or being given this gift of conversational fundraising. I know that I'm better. I know that I'm serving the donors better. I know that most people that I'm partnering with are having better experiences. That, that's what I know for sure. It's wonderful. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you. There is so much to think about in what Ryan just shared with us. This could take years to get practice with, implement, and put into place, but the main point is to help donors see bigger numbers next to their names and to get practice making these asks with donors. I hope you try at least one of Ryan's gift frames and that his presentation will inspire you to think differently about the giving arc your donors create with their philanthropy. Have a great week and connect with me on LinkedIn or Instagram and reach out with any questions you may have. I love to hear from you.